Good evening and welcome to the Soho Theatre on July the 14th, 2013 for No Pressure to Be Funny, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. And now it's time to introduce you to your host, a man who shares a studio with Nick Ferrari so that you don't have to. Please welcome Mr. James O'Brien. This week on No Pressure to Be Funny, we will be asking questions like which foreigner is the greatest threat to Britain's well-being, Abu Qatada or Linton Crosby? Julian Assange, does he have any moral right to object to being bugged? In Israel at the moment, liberal intellectuals like Amos Oz are leading protests against government plans to evict Palestinians from an area of the West Bank before it is turned into an army firing range. In fairness to the Israeli government, that's quite progressive, isn't it? That they're planning to clear the population first. Uh, back in Britain, the Office of National Statistics is going to cut down on the amount of statistics they collect in order to save money. Some of the statistics they're no longer going to bother with include teenage pregnancy rates, the effects of smoking and drinking, cancer survival rates, cause of death data, and life expectancy. In other words, every single thing that's going to make the health service look bad. So where will the Daily Mail get its scare stories from in the future? Especially now that Abu Qatar has left town. Uh, we'll, we'll have some music now. This man has been on No Pressure to be funny so many times that I've run out of stuff to plunder from his Wikipedia entry. So by way of an introduction, we've simply moved on to someone else with the same name. So please join me in welcoming to the stage American-born, British-based, former shipping tycoon, Mr. James Sherwood. Uh, the thing about the poor and needy <laughs> is uh, they've really just had it far too easy for far too long. Uh, and so, thank God this government has come along when it did. Oh Lord, I'd love to be poor. I'd give everything that I own. I'd trade in my house and my car and my stuff To call a filthy bedsit my own Cause poor people have it so easy The food banks provide all your meals And poverty gives you a sense of belonging That a rich guy like me never feels Oh Lord, I wish I was hungry starving have life on a plate you must feel the burden just lift from your shoulders when you lose half your body weights when there's no food on your table there's no washing up to be done if you haven't eaten for ages and ages hallucinating is such fun Lord, why can I be disabled? I'd give my right leg so to be To have my own chair just to wheel me around Well, that sounds like heaven to me You get your own go at the Olympics And toilets and parking galore And as if those things aren't cushy enough you're frequently hungry and poor Who could ask for anything more? James Sherwood, ladies and gentlemen. James Sherwood. Um, and now let's bring the panel onto the stage. Uh, writer and comedian Angela Barnes won the 2011 BBC New Comedy Award and is now, as a result, over two years funnier than she was then. Comedian and no-pressure regular Ellis James is Welsh and likes football, mainly because he was one of the very few people from Wales not picked for the recent Lions series against Australia. Brendan Burns is a groundbreaking stand-up comedian who won the 2007 If Dot Comedy Edinburgh Award. Uh, he prefers wrestling to rugby, probably because he's Australian. And Joe Glanville is director of the anti-censorship organisation English Pen and a member of the Ministry of Justice Working Party on libel reform. So you can probably say almost anything you like about her, and she won't object. We'll just say how pleased we are to have her and the rest of the panel on the show. 
You'll be aware that the uh, uh, IPSA, the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, has suggested that members of Parliament in Britain should be paid more money. Um, what's interesting about this is that when they polled MPs secretly, the percentage that thought they deserved more money was about 86%. <laughs> And uh, when uh, I, I work at an LBC radio station, and when uh, I heard producers on every single program trying to find MPs this week to come on the radio and say, well, well, yes, I, I think we do. We do deserve more money. It was absolutely impossible. So 86% of, MP, uh, of MPs, if you ask them in private, uh, die massively in favor of this. I'll ask them to say it in public, diametrically opposed, except for one, um, Andrew Bridgen a Conservative MP who pointed out that he gets paid roughly the same as uh, deputy headmistresses in his constituency. This is something Joe pointed out to me before we came on stage. And his argument is, there are lots of deputy headteachers in my constituency and only one MP. <laughs> Key thing is the timing, isn't it? It's such a, an appalling time to start discussing giving MPs a pay rise when the country still hasn't dug itself out of its dreadful hole. Mm -hmm. When would be a good time? Probably never. No. <laughs> so just sitting around at Westminster and thinking, checking the watch, checking the calendar. No, we've still got a massive national debt. We've still got all sorts. When, 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 Ellis? When would be a good time for the MPs to receive the recompense and the reward that they so richly deserve? I think when hell freezes over. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't do it for sixty-six grand. But then my ego is only big enough to make me a comedian as opposed to an MP. So, you know, I just, it's just, I just think it's, they're still in the top 5% of earners. They still earn far more than the, the medium uh, income, which is 21 grand a year. And with benefit cuts and food banks, and also, it, just, it just looks like they're taking the piss. They also, um, they get great pensions, which are unsustainable. So... Although the, or the proposal is that you know that the pension, I, that the pay goes up, the pension goes down. So True. it's supposed to be a trade-off. But I was at a comedy club last week, and I asked the other acts in the dressing room if any of them had private pensions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was it was a bigger laugh than any of us got on stage. It was we rolled we, we rolled around <laughs> laughing. So I, I I don't really care that you know uh, that their pensions are, are going to be sort of equalised because they're still doing quite well. Is this because you hold the political class in, in complete contempt and the notion that you might attract a better class of candidate by paying them more is, is I mean, just ridiculous on every level? Have you ever had like some guy you went to school with and he wound up in politics? Yeah. And he was always just like, it, it was an act of revenge? Yeah. Because it, it, it just, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that wasn't a bit of a dick. At school. I know that when Michael Gove was at school in Scotland, he was regularly chased around the school by two bigger boys in full <laughs> uniform and regalia who called themselves the Gove Busters. I remember one kid, Martin Landau, who hit me in the head with a cricket bat <laughs> and I stuffed his face in the urinal. And he's now in defence. The, 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 mi the Ministry well, of Defence. Yes, he yeah. is. Well, obviously formed by that terrible experience. Yeah, but the thing is, he hit me with the bat first. <laughs> I, I had a situation where I, used, I worked uh, in the summer before I went to university. I worked in a police station canteen, right, which uh, is interesting for many reasons. But I, I found that a lot of the young policemen, it was in, in Maidstone in Kent where I had the misfortune to grow up. Did you just and serve donuts and coffee? Basically, yes. Yeah, and, and the young policemen with something to prove, I recognised some of them and realised that they were the same guys that when I was... 12 or 13, gaffer taped me into a phone box while I was on the phone to my dad <laughs> on the estate that I lived in. Were you getting and married? police officers. <laughs> that's, that, that's not bad, though. <laughs> I mean, for policemen, that's quite funny, isn't it? Well, so <laughs> what, what, you're, what you're drawing on Brendan's theme that inadequate people are drawn End into, into authoritarian positions. Yeah. I'm not getting much mileage, then, with the idea that you really do need to pay more than 66 grand a year if you want to tempt people out of other professions where you would expect to earn that sort of money if you'd, if you'd sort of done quite well by your, by your mid-40s or so? Well, I mean, th th I mean, the only thing that draws people to their job is vanity, isn't it? Surely some people want to change the world for the better. Isn't that yeah, the problem we've got now, and that's what we should be trying to address? But even then, even then, if you are, like, going into it to, you know, well, you know what, I think I would make the world better. That's is the this, problem. You know what, you know what's really missing? You know what's really missing in Westminster? Fucking me. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I would love to see you in Westminster, Brendan. So, um, go for it. <laughs> Can you It'll imagine the, the slams at PMQs? <laughs> Sit down, you toilet. <laughs> Sit down. 
The, the, the Australian, you ever watch Australian Parliament? Yeah. It's actually pretty... Uh, they're a little... It's a lot of fun. They don't hold back as much, perhaps, as our boys. No, no, no. There's a lot of heckling and just, I withdraw. It's what your dad should have done, dickhead. <laughs> Do your fucking story walking. Have you ever Paranoid. met someone that, like, then decided to go into politics? And then you just saw them change overnight. They just they started being dishonest, the way that they speak. How, how quickly? How quickly? Uh, have you seen the film Gremlins? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's like Gremlins, yeah. Quickly? It's like you got yeah, it's like you got water on them <laughs> after night. They just so smug. Yeah, I mean, you, you ever speak to like any journalist, and they say the two most interesting interviews are comics and politicians, right? And they're the ones that are the most on their feet. And the comedian will be rushing to the quick. He will come up with the quickest way to tell the truth, and a, polit a politician will come up with the quickest way to basically dodge the question. Joe, you you have no choice but to talk to politicians. I sit sitting on the um, the libel reform committee and working for for, for, for English Pen, yeah, the no, anti-censorship organisation. Yeah. You, you can't achieve your dreams without dealing with no, these people. No, it's absolutely true. I spend far far too much time talking to politicians. Are, are they um, as Brendan described them? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, before I did this job, I was working as a journalist and, you know, would spend my time working for the BBC and would spend my time trying to get, trying to get politicians onto, onto programmes. And uh, so it's, it's very strange moving to the other side where you, you really, really want something from them that it's something kind of quite different and they don't want to give it to you as much as getting on the Today programme. So that's a, it's a much, much harder, harder this, job one has to do. Is this a world that we are creating when people get so offend, uh, offended and upset when someone dares to tell the truth and people really are kind of you know drawn over the coals is this like we uh, you know as a as a people must want to be lied to on some level you know there's research this week the Royal Statistical Society showing that the British public are wrong about absolutely everything. And, <laughs> and, 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 and when you point this out to people, they don't, th they don't thank you for it. You know? well, I'm, I'm guilty of this, of like all the invasions of my privacy and everything, and I'm just an old lazy fuck. So you, and, you know, if someone says to me, "Hey, you know what? We're gonna, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna monitor all your emails and, and everything," but at the same time, we'll just, uh, it, there will be a convenience in it. And uh, we yes. will make your life... Like reminders. You know what? If someone said, we want to go inside your asshole and check your shit, but guess what? You don't have to gather receipts anymore because we're checking what you eat, right? <laughs> so you I would think that. about that. I would go, wow, no more fucking accounts? What, you just like, you put a camera in my ass? But you know, and I don't have to do accounting anymore? <laughs> fucking awesome. But like that's, a that's, proctologist. That, that, that's, that, that's actually quite a good analogy because what they, what all the, the privacy organisations say is that they left a back door, that they left a back door in the system so that, <laughs> exactly, so that, so that intelligence, MI6, uh, NSA, GCHQ could get into that back door and see what we were up to. Whenever yeah. they want. I, I would like reminders. I'd be quite comfortable having all of my privacy compromised. They can read all my emails, my tweets, my texts, my private exchanges with my wife. If then I got the occasional little call saying, y you, you're supposed to be out on Wednesday night. You can't, you can't, you're supposed, <laughs> you're supposed to be playing oh, Or a compliment. Yes, yes, that would be nice you as well. Yeah, exactly. exactly. If they I went think you look really nice. And went, you know what? That was really well worded. <laughs> You have nailed it. I've got, to, I've, I've got to do two things quickly, but before I do that, I, I just want to check something. I can't see hands, so a sort of low murmur, so the people you're with don't necessarily know whether you're agreeing or not. But Alan Wicker passed away on Friday. I did this really weird thing where I saw it, sort of the name appeared a lot on the wires in the studio, and, and Twitter was there, and I saw Alan Wicker, and then I saw he was dead. And I had this little moment of relief that it wasn't Operation Utree. Yeah. And is that, is that normal? It is now, yeah. <laughs> Not really. Not very normal. Okay. Well, I thought it was quite a charitable thought. I must admit, have you spoken to anyone that, that was Australian or American and had no idea who Jimmy Savile was until now? And everything you need to know about that whole story is all it takes is an Australian and American. You show him a picture and they're like, of course he was fucking yeah. kids. He's, He's wearing the uniform. It's... It's like he's gone to the paedophile Freeman's catalogue. Because, I mean, these days, a paedophile has to be a bit more covert. But they've got like, tell me, Mr. Savile Row, what's the paedophile about town wearing this summer? I'm thinking a milkman's outfit and a big swinging medallion right into my 70s. 
It's big cigar that I never liked. That ought to do it. It's uh, and isn't it a testament that like how much we hate our kids now? That basically we know that kids are assholes, and that if you've got like a grandparent <laughs> that wants to spend too much time with your children, you're automatically suspicious. Because <laughs> you're like, going, look, I, I'm with them every day, and they're fucking cunts. <laughs> Why would so you I'm just choose? saying, you know, Uncle fucking Tommy, who seems to be, want me to drop the kids off twice a week, I don't fucking trust that motherfucker. <laughs> I don't trust that guy. This is terrible. The, the thing with Jimmy Savile dressing like that, though, is quite clever. It's like the greatest double bluff yes. of all time. Yes. Isn't it? <laughs> Hiding in plain sight. No way. that obvious. I've got, to, I've got to do two things very quickly. First of all, I have I've to. Got say, to go put I a shiny tracksuit on. What? <laughs> no one tell you that the second half is tribute act. Yeah. Before I invite Nick onto the stage, I just would like to say hello to somebody whose daughter is just moving into stalking territory when it comes to asking me to say hello to her father this evening. So, so Rajan, if you're here, Rajan, how lovely is Romina with you as well? She didn't even come. She didn't even come. I can't believe it. She's been bombarding my studio. She's been tweeting me, emailing me, Facebooking me. Rajan, it's lovely to see you. She just gave us a second granddaughter two weeks ago. Right, well, that's no excuse. Right. <laughs> Nicola Hawlett was back at work after three. But Rajan, congratulations and thanks for coming down. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Mr. Nick Revel. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, I'm not particularly proud of the story that I'm going to tell, uh, but it does uh, get us onto one of the subjects that we wanted to discuss, uh, which is uh, Michael Gove's uh, curriculum reforms. Um, I, I, I grew up in, in West Yorkshire, moved up to Yorkshire actually, when I was seven from London, where I learned, and I, I learned a crucial cultural fact about this country uh, when I did that, which is this. If, uh, if you put three British people in a room, the two who live furthest north will immediately agree that the other one is a wanker. <laughs> It's just culturally inevitable. So, yeah. Don't forget it, first day in the school playground. Hello, my name's Nick, I'm from London. Well, why don't you fuck off back there? <laughs> A harsh teacher. <laughs> Mrs. Wilson, better. <laughs> <laughs> But I, so I went to when I was twelve. I went to the local the local uh, state grammar school. It was all grammar schools and secondary schools uh, back in the seventies. And uh, uh, in, in in town where I lived, Pontefract King School, Pontefract. That's that was a local state grammar school. And then in the next town or city, actually, but we always called it a town, Wakefield. They had a fee-paying grammar school called Queen Elizabeth's Grammar School, Quegs, and we hated them. We hated them because they were posh. And they went to a fee-paying school. Uh, and they wouldn't play us at rugby. When, but anyway, what really pissed me off about uh, Quakes, apart from all the privileges on, was that on their blazer, their school motto was Terpe Nescire, Latin for it is shameful to be ignorant. And that really pissed me off, you know, because my view is this. It's shameful to be ignorant if you've had the chance and the choice to be educated and learn, but... If you're actually flaunting a superior education because your parents happen to be rich enough to pay for it, then that, to me, is really fucking out of order to walk around town flaunting your superiority like that. And I'm fully aware of the fact that there's a certain irony in the kind of class warfare that I was conducting being based on the fact that I could understand what the motto <laughs> in Latin on somebody's blazer said. I'm fully aware of that, but it still riled me. Um, Terpe Nescire, uh, incidentally, is a, is, is a phrase from the writings of St. Jerome, who was a 4th-century uh, um, uh, um, religious person. Um, he, uh, he was a bit of a misogynist. Uh, he, he spent the last years of his life living as a hermit in the Syrian desert and translating the Bible into Latin. He'd had to, I think he'd had to flee Rome because he had some previous... With, he was a tutor to the, uh, the daughters of the emperor, and, and it seems quite clear that he nagged one of them so maliciously about her body image that she came, became anorexic and died. So he moved to the Syrian desert where he was translating the Bible into Latin uh, and, and he lived on his own because he was terrified of his own sexuality uh, and occasionally he would have 
hallucinations of Syrian dancing girls lasciviously writhing around him while he was translating the Bible. Uh, and when this happened, he, he puts in his diaries, um, he, he would beat himself with rocks until his erection went down. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm not judging him. I'm just saying he's one of the fathers of the Catholic Church. Uh, 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 and, and that nowadays his uh, YouTube clips would be viral. But <laughs> anyway, so Turpinescuro. <laughs> it did, it riled me. And uh, I, uh, near the bus stop where I used to get the bus home, uh, there was a W.H. Smith in, in, in Pontefract. And I used to go in there sometimes, obviously have a look around the, the book section and so on. Uh, and, and, and in the poetry section, I remember going in on a Monday and they had the selected poems of T.S. Eliot in paperback, and I thought, fuck me, I'm going to buy that. Great, fantastic. One copy. My paper round money came in on a Thursday, so Thursday, got paid Thursday morning, so Thursday afternoon, after school, I'm into a W.H. Smith's to buy T.S. Eliot's selected poems. I'm really excited, and I'm walking up to the poetry section, and there's a guy there from Queggs with his Turpin Esquiri blazer on, about to buy the selected poems of T.S. Eliot. Only one copy. So, as I say, I'm not proud of this, what I do, I walk up behind him, smash him in the ribs, push him over, say, Terpe Nesquire, you didn't know much about that, did you, you fucking twat? <laughs> Took the copy of the selected poems and, 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 and bought them. And, and so my point is, I don't think that poetry should be on the national curriculum because it encourages violence. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Revel, ladies and gentlemen. Terpe Nesquire. <laughs> where, where, where do you start? Um, what was the most important thing the panel learned at school? And if you were Michael Gove, only in the extent that you're in charge of education, I don't, I don't want to give you nightmares, what, what would you force children to learn, Angela? I went to a, a girls' grammar school, um, and it... Uh, there are two things I wish I'd really learn at school. One is just really basic. I left school not knowing really what a mortgage was or anything about financial planning or anything. You're not taught. I think those skills are the skills that children need. Did you know, accounting? No, no. Not, nothing. Like that. I went to a really traditional they grammar school. It was no, a no, state they school. They still don't. They still don't. No. You're joking me. Do you, is this no. normal in Australia? Yeah, you're absolutely forced to do accounting. Well, actually. <laughs> I got a, <laughs> I got a no award and convinced my parents that NA stood for nearly advanced, because I <laughs> hated accounting that much. I didn't have an accounting book, and the teacher said, "Next time you turn up this class without your accounting book, I'm not going to let you in." And I went, "Fuck bonus!" It, <laughs> yes, yes, and they bunked off for an entire year. Uh, and that, got, that's staggering it. to me. Well, it, it's, it's staggering that, that you're staggered because it, it is self-evident, but it yeah. is completely normal I mean, we're in, to we're experience in a, what Angela a experienced. Situation at the moment with you know the crisis with payday loans and, yep. and yep. particularly people um, on lower incomes and, and from a certain social background that haven't been given the tools to, to deal with that, don't know what an APR is, don't know those simple basic things. Well, and I, bit, yeah. I so went to a grammar school, I went to a, you know, supposedly the top 10% of, uh, you know, streaming and everything, yet we were never, none of that stuff was, uh, not even how to manage a bank account was ever. Oh, and yeah. what was your, where did you learn it then? Just... Well, you know, I mean, I am down. terrible with when money. When the bailiffs <laughs> turned up, there was, yes. there was a cold, yes. hard lesson. <laughs> <in> the <laughs> they took away my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you learn it? Baptism I mean, I of fire. <laughs> lots of my friends and like have my, my best friend's dad's a bank manager, so she has exactly that. She'll go to her dad for all that advice. You know, my dad ran a sex shop for a living, and his his. Uh, Can I his have his number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You could, but if you've got the hotline you. to wherever he is now, you oh, can have it. But See, <laughs> that, actually, if your dad ran a sex shop, that yeah. would have been actually one you know, spreadsheet that would have been remotely interesting. <laughs> also, surely... Big surely, rubber dongs. <laughs> he could have talked you through double-entry bookkeeping. <laughs> oh, fuck you and your cricket clap. That was... <laughs> <laughs> That was so that was British. That was, that was, that, you know what you did then? You went, imagine if he made that joke. He fucking did. <laughs> We're not as comfortable with anal sex as Australians are. That was like, that, that only was imagine. That's why they were holding back. So very I think we're all, wry, very we're, wry. We're, we're all in agreement. It was a butt fucking joke. <laughs> 
It's almost like having subtitles appearing on the bottom of the... <laughs> I, tell you, I did used to help my dad in the shop, and let me tell you, no girl should ever have to do a dildo stock take with her dad. That's no. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> We're in agreement on, on what children should be taught. Uh, Ellis, do, do you want to either add to that list or tell us what the most important thing you learnt at school was? Uh, being very bad at fighting and being very cheeky are quite a bad mix. That was mm. the most important thing I learnt at Funny school. Funny that, um, yeah. But, no, I... Uh, I'm with Angela. I wish I'd been taught proper stuff because I, I did a degree in history and politics and then an MA in history and then I got to work mm. and I couldn't, I'd never send an email, I couldn't, I couldn't use a fax machine, all this sort of stuff. And it was fucking embarrassing. Like it was, <laughs> I turned around and I was like, listen guys, if you want to talk about Hannah Rents, the origins of totalitarianism, I can appreciate for you. But if you want me to do anything else at Transco, the gas pipe company, I am fucking useless. <laughs> <laughs> and I got sacked after three days, right? <laughs> and they gave me, t they gave me, they gave me, they gave me, uh, they gave me three reasons, right? They said, um, number one, slouching. How can you get sacked for slouching? Number two, not fitting in. Right? I played five aside with the fuckers on the Thursday night. How can I not have been fitted in? I was, I had a, had a great engine in those days. I was up and down the pitch, and um, uh, and the third one was that the my boss, uh, my, my boss's friend who worked in a different department had caught me. <laughs> She'd he'd walked into the toilet, and I was just leaning against the mirror, going no, 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 <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Oh, and, he, and, he, and he dubbed me in. <laughs> and I remember thinking, feeling really cheated that I'd been at university for four years and just seemingly knew fuck all. Um, and it was, it was horrible. So I would, I would genuinely teach more... Um, something vocational, something practical. I also, I can't, I can't put up a shelf. I can't do any of that stuff. That's all I can do is I can write uh, Edinburgh uh, shows which are moderately received. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brendan, what, 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 what the fuck did you learn at school, mate? <laughs> it's remarkable that it's okay with you making that joke. You, all, <laughs> you stuck it to the convict, didn't you? <laughs> Look at you knowing how to balance your books. What a fucking idiot. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> you. Uh, actually, I was uh, pretty good at English, in English lit. And uh, but everything else, I was you know I was very easily distracted. I um, you know I remember uh, <laughs> after I got expelled from one school, I thought right, I better get through this system and uh, knuckle down um, because my dad sent me to a drilling rig up north. Really? Yeah, and he said right, you want to you you know you want to be a labourer for a living. You know this is the most money you can make as a labourer. And he sent me up north to Falls Creek holding uh, geologist, uh, geologist sample bags in 50 degree heat. 50 degree heat. And I went, fuck that, I'm going back to school. And so I knuckled down, you know. Compared, compared to today, what, what's 50 degree heat like? Uh, if, twice. Yeah, I'm not mathem <laughs> mathematically, I understand. I was looking. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for emotion, you not statistics. <laughs> you don't get that from fancy book learning. <laughs> it, it, you can cook an egg on a. You can cook an egg on a metal surface. You, you know, it'll take a while, but you can cook an egg. You really feel sorry for the goths in that situation. <laughs> yeah. uh, Aussie goths. Aussie goths are really fucking committed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to give credit where it's due. Uh, but, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I really like Bram Stoker, <laughs> but this dress code is a fucking bitch. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now this song, um, you know there are, there are some people who they, they uh, fall in love with someone and, and they just become the best person they could ever be. So that's, sometimes that's what happens. And sometimes it doesn't. I used to give to charities whenever they'd request But now I keep it all for you and me and sod the rest If I buy a poppy now I'll give 5p You bring out the best in me I used to go to benefits where Sting was performing Now I couldn't give a monkeys about global warming Sometimes just to relax we cut down a tree You bring out the best in me 
used to care for people any color creed or race but now you've changed your ways it's true you can ignore a beggar with such elegance and grace maybe i bring out the best in you at the cinema i used to be as quiet as a mouse now we each wear a sombrero the size of a small house why should it bother me if no one else can see bring out the best in me apart from you i couldn't care what anybody thinks i've given up paying tax i've stopped buying drinks and i'm going to be falkirk's next mp because you bring out the best in me i give rebecca wade the use of my chateau down in france surely everybody nowadays deserves a second chance abu Qatar has just been kipping on my city bring out the best in me I've not been in the army but on poppy day each year I put on an old uniform with medals down to here the main one says Jim fixed it for me you bring out the best in me the lyrics of this next verse have sadly been redacted dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum something 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 DLT Bring out the best in me. I told Lord Sarchi, throat and neck are erogenous zones. It was me that set the ticket prices for the Rolling Stones, and I got Egypt to attempt democracy. You bring out the best in me. Now I spend my evenings hacking phones and bribing the police. I'm not sure how it happened. I think I now own Greece, and if you want it, it'll cost you 50p. Bring out the best, you bring out the best, you bring out the best in me. James Sherwood, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, James. First class. What is wrong with corruption? <laughs> if, it, if it didn't exist, it would be invented. Corruption equals influence. And that's off Tarek. Is that a little kiss, Tarek, after your name, or is that just a full stop? But we're dry, okay. No, a smiley face. No, what is nuts. wrong with corruption? Yeah, he, made, he raises a, an interesting point. Without, I'm not letting this it, one go. You've it, got to have a crack at what is wrong. Can this not be a matter of, of semantics as much as anything? Like the, the fact that the word corruption is a negative. So if there, if there was nothing wrong with corruption, then it wouldn't be corruption. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah. Did you say somebody went to grammar school? <laughs> 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 Linguistics degree, mate. <laughs> So well, it would you, if you don't call it corruption, you call it oiling the wheels, don't you? Or you, <laughs> might call, or you might call it sort of facilitating progress or, 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 or keeping everybody happy. Well, one man's bribe is another man's I, bonus. I've also never been swayed by the argument of if it didn't exist, someone would invent it. Because you could say that about fucking everything. <laughs> Couldn't you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Rolling Stones in Hyde Park last Sunday, seven, seven, seven nights, so after... Murray, it was a big day last Sunday. I'm glad, I'm glad. Aren't we lucky that we'd waited a week? No one would have come. Um, but this is a sort of a curious tracking of social change since 1969 when they played in the park, and it was free. I, I don't know, how much was it this time? It was about £150 a ticket or something like that. I made that number up, don't start. <laughs> but about, about 100 it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a lot of money. Um, I saw them at Glasgow. Uh, uh, Glasgow? Oh, God, you Get you. prick. <laughs> You're 42, you're not allowed to say Glasgow anymore. You're never allowed to say it, I hope. Uh, yeah, no, you, it, it, uh, 42, uh, but quite frankly, I'm 42 and wearing bright orange thongs, so... He means flip-flops, flip <laughs> he means flip-flops. <laughs> See? See? Look how happy you are. See that. No, <laughs> and the rugby. <laughs> and that, and that is why I, multiculturalism will never work. When I, <laughs> right right, right there, Mr. Farrell. When I went so to Australia, that confused me for months. <laughs> so they, uh, and uh, it was a brilliant kind of, you know, there was a real sense of community and everyone was singing the songs. And then I got back and my friends told me, have you seen it on telly? And I was like, no, no. And he goes, don't. Don't watch it on telly. Because then, apparently on telly, it was just, you know, he let the audience do the gig. Because, <laughs> like, about four songs in, and he's pumping around. But by the end, he's just, that big jump, Jack Flash. 
got to get over to you. And he's talking to other singers and stuff. Apparently, he barely did a thing. <laughs> but we as the audience, we were just like, you know, because it was so, you know, monumental and historic that everyone was, I guess, kind of... Also, like, I've been going to Glastonbury for, like, two decades now. It was the most, com- like, the most devotion I've ever seen... For them. ...an audience... Yeah, to, to, to the pyramid stage. The, 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 I mean, no one went to anything else. I mean, no matter how many drugs you take, there's no way you're going to go, let's go and see the Proclaimers. That'd be funny. <laughs> let's, go sit, let's sit through 45 minutes of the Proclaimers waiting for them to do 500 miles <laughs> while the Stones are playing. Every tent was empty. It was the most dominating you know, performance I've ever seen there ever. I, I was named after a Rolling Stones song. I was, my That's a relief, a given what your dad had to work <laughs> with. My, <laughs> my dad actually went to school with Mick Jagger. They went to Dartford Grammar School for Boys. That's, wow. and, and that's why I'm... Because I'm an Angie, really, not an Angela. But really? I, I, yeah, I hate Angie ever since EastEnders in the 80s ruined it for me, really. <laughs> so. I don't get festivals. I, 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 I would go to see comedians, but I can go and see comedians in nice places with bars and, and roofs. And <laughs> seats and tables. I don't understand. Tents are a different gig. Yeah. yeah. Well, basically, when it comes when it comes to a theatre, it's about you. Mm. When you're playing in a tent, you have to make it about them. Because particularly at Glastonbury, someone's going to like wander by in a medieval outfit, medieval outfits, and start jousting in the corner. <laughs> and you can't just go. So I just bought a computer. <laughs> you know, while there's someone staging a fight, you have to react to what's happening in the room. That's and there's, there's the thing of there's always children as well. I remember seeing you at Glastonbury oh. many years ago. Not the mushroom you, was it? It wasn't the mushroom you, it was before that, I think. Thank God. Um, but I remember you, you teaching a child what carnalingus was to berate their parents for taking them to a oh comedy yeah. show. <laughs> you met, were you there the Gemma year? Everyone it might well have been. Gemma, no, Gemma was my first year and there's like a nine-year-old girl, it was me and Noel Fielding, she walks down to the front of the stage and she just starts going... I want to sing a song. And I said, it was Noel's first Glastonbury. And I said, oh, look, uh, you know, you have to make it about them. She goes, I want to sing a song. So we got her up to sing a song. And then it was like, hang on, where the fuck are your parents? <laughs> and she goes like, oh, they're over in their tent. And I went, you know, oh, all right, is the uh, tent going like this? Right? And everyone's like, oh. And I'm like, fuck you, I'm the one babysitting. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nick Revel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do this really quickly because I don't think we, we, we need it. Um, but I, I, I just, <laughs> frankly, you know, no, I do. It's just, there's some good stuff in here, but it's just not quite zinging. Um, you know, <laughs> sell it, Nick, not, sell I'm it. I'm being honest. You know, I've got to be, you know, sell it's true. There's, there's some okay stuff in this, but it's basically just this. Well, there's lots of legal stories about this week. And now, <laughs> so I'm just going to try and round some of them up so we can get on to some intelligent comment about it afterwards. Um, If you can rely on the tabloids, Britain's budget should be back in surplus soon now that Abu Qatar has left the country. Um, And and Theresa May said that she's she's proud of the fact that the UK patiently went through all the procedures and and, and obeyed the letter of the law. And that's a radical position for a Home Secretary to take, isn't it? Respecting the law. Um, but now she wants to get us out of the European Commission uh, on, on Human Rights, uh, presumably so that in future we can be a little more discerning about which human beings are entitled to have their rights as human beings respected. Uh, and I can buy that because, I mean, no, the liberal argument is that tolerating other human beings' opinions and recognizing their right not to be jailed without trial and conviction is what makes us civilised, uh, even if the people in question are offensive and dangerous. But, you know, what liberals and all the other human rights junkies like Amnesty International don't seem to understand is that all human conflict and violence happens precisely because people have different opinions and are allowed to express them openly. If you really want peace and harmony on this planet, you need to ruthlessly stamp out dissent, not allow people to go around saying whatever they like, and who doesn't want a quiet life, you know? And that's why Theresa has also this week banned a public inquiry into the death of Alexander Litvinenko. He's the guy who died uh, in London uh, in 2006 of totally natural causes (laughs) a few days after somebody put a lethal dose of 
polonium into his tea. And, and she's banned it because an open inquiry would possibly entail possible Russian involvement in his death, which, you know, I mean, what are the chances of Russian involvement in the death of a Russian ex-KGB agent turned whistleblower who was killed by a radioactive poison, 98% of which is manufactured in Russia? I mean, <laughs> you know, that's about as likely as getting justice from a Florida jury. Um, <laughs> Russia... Russia has profound respect for the rule of law. I mean, so much so that this week they even put dead people on trial. I mean, and that is a dedication to national security that even the otherwise meticulously conscientious and avuncular Joseph Stalin overlooked. Uh, and luckily the, the dead man they tried, uh, Sergei Magnitsky, was found guilty, cause, uh, uh, which was lucky, because he, he died four years ago in a Russian jail. So, you know, if he'd been cleared, they'd have had to let him out. Um, <laughs> uh, but out of compassion, though, they, they didn't give him a sentence, uh, but G4S have offered to tag him <laughs> at a discount rate. Uh, <laughs> Also in London this week, the High Court upheld the Attorney General's decision to veto publishing 27 letters uh, that Prince Charles has written to government ministers uh, on the ground that they would make the heir to the throne look like an obnoxious bell end. Um, that's the exact technical jargon in the document, by the way, or to put it in its original words, noli monstrare regem futurum bellendum maximum. Um, uh, apparently, uh, the reason they've not let out the letters is because if we knew what was in the letters, uh, it would severely undermine king, uh, Prince Charles's suitability to be king. Uh, whereas if we don't know what they said, <laughs> then obviously we can have no objections. Uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you hide the evidence, the offence did not take place. That is habeas corpus right there with a nice little postmodern ironic twist to drag it kicking and screaming into the 21st century wearing a ball gag and an orange jumpsuit. What's important and significant about this story is that the veto means that ministers are above the law and the implication of the letters staying secret is that Charles is acting outside the law by not being politically neutral. Uh, someone should tell the Home Secretary. Thank you. Thanks very much. The bell end addendum, I think that, uh, that little bit of... Is it, you know what comedians are like, Joe Glanville. Was that entirely accurate, the Prince Charles stuff? Yes, it? yeah, it's absolutely accurate. Actually, you know, it was, it was the Labour government, New Labour, that brought in the Freedom of Information Act that campaigners have been calling for for years and years and years and years and years. It was one of the best things that they did. Boy, it's a short did, list. Boy, it is a short <laughs> list, but it is on, you know, it's near the top of the list. Boy, did they regret it. They really regretted it. Uh, they as really regretted of the it. Political class, they regretted yeah, it. they really did regret it, and they've tried to kind of castrate it and limit it. And obviously, there is this veto, um, and which uh, the attorney, which is Dominic Grieve at the moment, the attorney yes, general, yes, that he was that he was allowed that he was allowed to exercise. Um, but what I find kind of quite laughable about about this, and it was the Guardian actually who who actually tried to get this judgment overturned. Um, and took it to the High Court. And so the judges, you know, Lord, the wonderfully named Lord Chief Justice is called Lord Judge Judge. Yeah. His surname <laughs> is Lord Chief Justice Judge. Um, and he said, he actually said in the judgment, this is basically an outrage, but yeah. we don't think it should be released. So the judges have basically made it clear they think this is, this is, a, this is appalling. And the other thing that I find very... So that, that they're saying the law is rubbish, but we have to... Yeah, right. and the other thing I find very comical is that they, they're con as, as Nick was saying, they're concerned that the political neutrality of Prince Charles is preserved so that it doesn't compromise him when he, if ever he becomes king. This is but, like we all, but we all, now we all know, we, enough has come out to know that the man is not politically neutral, so what the hell? Why not just release it? It's just well, absurd. It the might whole be even worse than our darkest nightmares. Well, we know, we know that he's interfering. We know that he puts what? pressure on... That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a question for Operation <laughs> Utree, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we do. But well, I don't know what his... I mean, I would have said the Green Party might be sort of secretly hoping that he's going to come out for them. We don't know that he's a sort of out-and-out... But, but, but we, do, we do know that he, that, that, that he makes his views known and he tries to influence ministers, which is, which is worrying enough. Yeah, well, for sure. And, and that, that's entirely... The reason why we can't publish these letters, or we can't let the public see what these letters are, is because the contents of them would undermine his suitability to be king. 
Well, and, and above all, I think it's that, 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 that the monarch is supposed to be politically neutral. And this would prove he isn't, therefore you're not allowed to see the evidence that he isn't But the what thing, he is the thing is, he's be. never going to become king anyway, is he? So why not? Yeah, no. Why not? Not at this rate, because, you know, he'll, his mother is going to last forever. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she'll be 110 and we'll be still be celebrating her and having all the ceremonies. That could have been ambiguously then, royalist as well. His mother's going to last forever! <laughs> and then <laughs> Charles, Charles will probably have early onset dementia... And then his son will become king. But we'll never know. We'll put in a freedom of information request from, I don't know, a little-known London radio station saying, has Prince Charles got dementia? And you will never hear from me again. That will be... <laughs> a, little, a little bit of dismay would have been, would have been nice. That, but genuinely, <laughs> 41 years old, been a journalist for most of my working life, I cannot believe that. I find it absolutely but it is, but, incredible. But, 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 you know, there are, in, 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 the, in this freedom, it is a massively curtailed Freedom of Information Act. So there are all sorts of other areas where, you know, every single person in this audience can put in a request to, you know... To, to see to stuff. To see stuff. And there are extraordinary numbers of reasons that will come back to you. There are all sorts of kind of get-out clauses that were written into this Sometimes act. it's laziness and incompetence. I, I, I genuinely believe that. Some of the ones I've submitted have come back as, well, we've never actually counted. Do you really want us to? Because it might take a really long time. Yeah. We haven't really got any civil servants. But I, I remember once, incredibly, I, I, um, years ago when I was working at the BBC, I worked on a, a documentary series about the origins of the Suez crisis, 1956. Um, and as many of you will know, Britain was shamefully involved in this secret invasion to get the Suez Canal back off NASA. Not, not one of the finest moments in the mm -hmm. history of this country. And so I put in a freedom of information request to the cabinet office, I think, to the foreign office, because I thought there must still be papers that haven't been released um, from 1956. And seriously, I got the response, this would endanger national security. 50 years later, they would not release the papers. Danger national security. It's funny, I, you know, I've been drawn back to Tarek and his question about corruption, because actually, it does depend what you call it. Doesn't it? So they call that national security, but it looks like corruption. It smells like corruption. I don't think it's. I don't. I wouldn't call it corruption. I call it secrecy. Moral that, corruption. It's secrecy. Morally corrupt. This, this is a country that has, you know. Oh, damn it. <laughs> you call it corruption. I'll call it secrecy. Well, okay. Let's okay. call the whole thing off. No, no. No. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very tempted at this point to, to turn. We're talking about the Prince of Wales, and Ellis, you come from Wales. You must have some biting insights to make into this story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Are you as shocked as I am, or am I sitting here sounding like a naive undergraduate? It's it, no, I, I'm I'm like you. I just find it astonishing that if we think that he's doing the wrong thing because everyone knows he's doing the wrong thing, they're not going to tell us about it. I just think that is that that is that has bent my mind. Yes, and it was pretty malleable anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, the, the, the Australian people have. I know you haven't lived there for a while, but they hold the royal family at the moment. It seems to be quite cyclical. They hold them in quite high regard. I presume that that will go out of the window if Prince Charles does. It's a pretty... There's, you know there's more than three of us. Yeah, but I'm looking at Australian television and they've been camped outside the hospital where she might have the baby longer. The BBC aren't there yet. The Aussies have been there for a fortnight. Yeah, but that's just to see if it's a prank. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the other story I was... Joe, the, the story that Nick mentioned from Russia about the bloke who's been on trial for a crime he probably didn't commit, but even if he did commit, he was alive when he committed it, and he's not alive now, but they've been putting him on trial uh, accused of tax dodging when well, he yeah. had outed other tax. He, it's a really, really horrifying story. Yes. Uh, he's a lawyer, a Russian lawyer called Sergei Magnitsky, and he was working as the lawyer for a hedge fund magnate called Bill Browder, who's American but lives in this country. And he basically realized that the Russian state, with the help of various other individuals, had essentially stolen, I think, something like more than $200 million from, um, from this um, hedge fund. And he started exposing it and speaking out about it. They arrested him. They murdered him uh, in, in jail. And no one has been brought to justice for it. And uh, except him. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. This, I mean, it is one of the sickest things I'm I've, still I've reeling heard. From the Prince Charles so stuff, it's only so Bill Browder, who is a really extraordinary man, 
has dedicated much of his life since this horrific murder to bringing these, these, this group of people to justice. It includes people in the interior ministry in Russia, police officers, people in the tax office, all in, in collusion with each other. So, so William Browder um, has managed to get um, the United States to pass successfully to pass a law to stop anyone connected with this murder from entering America. He's trying to get the same thing to happen here and elsewhere and failed so far. Um, but the Russian government, in this kind of unbelievable Kafka-esque turn, decided to put this dead man whose murder they had sanctioned on trial last week, and William Browder as well, and found them guilty. A dead man on trial is guilty. And not only that, but one of the police officers who William Browder has accused of, um, of being involved with this horrific fraud and murder is now suing William Browder in London in our, our libel courts. I thought we'd sorted out our problem with libel courts. Not yet, because the, although the Defamation Act was passed this year, um, it hasn't actually become law yet. It, the law commences. And uh, this is the only place in the world where he could sue for libel. Well, the trouble is, the trouble is that he does have a right to sue here because uh, William Browder lives here, uh, and also I think the sort of the defamation um, was sort of seen here. But his lawyers are taking the case to court the week after next arguing that the, the, the process has been abused, and that case has to be kicked out of court so hard it needs to land in Singapore. It's and just you're campaigning. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of the trouble is, that as, as we saw with the, with the Prince Charles case, where you've got the highest judge-judge, mm. as he's called, in the land, like basically saying he, he should actually be a rapper or something, really, but, no, like that, but, um, <laughs> but he... You've got, you know, so you've got these judges saying, this is preposterous, but we're not going to do it. We we're gonna do. Do. My hands so are in the same way, what you will get with this case, even though the judge it comes before will know this is a bloody outrage, there's murder, there's fraud on a massive scale that clearly goes right to the top in Russia, they will be looking at the kind of nitty-gritty of the law and thinking, hmm, yes, well, mm, if we dot the I's and cross the T's, we'll actually know in the end he has got a case. So I really wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't get thrown out. Doesn't it make you proud that tomorrow's newspapers will be full of stories about some foreign people who might be living in sheds in Hounslow? <laughs> uh, that's it for this evening. I'm sure you understand why I thought it was important to bring those, uh, those events to your attention. I'm very grateful to Joe Glanville for, for doing so so eloquently and expertly. I'm also, as I'm sure you are, very grateful to the rest of our panel this evening. Brendan Burns, Angela Barnes and Ellis James. <laughs> James Sherwood, of course, with the music. Alistair Barry and Nick Revel for... Uh, architecture. Nick Revel will be doing a solo show at the Phoenix Fringe in London on Sunday the 11th of August and we will, God willing, be back in the autumn. I'm James O'Brien. This is no pressure to be funny. Good night. <laughs>